Hello, and welcome to the Heathen's Journey podcast. I'm your host, Siri Vincent Clough, and I'm so glad you're here. This is the show where I explore heathenry through a queer lens. We will be talking about traditional witchcraft, runes, folklore, and so much more. Join us, won't you, as we journey to the ends of the Nine Realms and back. Hello, and welcome back to the Heathen's Journey podcast. Um, I'm so excited about this episode. This is going to be really great. Um, so I have a series of interviews and episodes planned all around ancestor work. And this is the first of those. It is with a good friend, Lex Ritchie. Um, but I will tell you more about them later. Um, first, I want to say happy Halloween, happy Samhain, happy All Saints Day, happy Dia de los Muertos, whatever holiday you are celebrating right now. Um, I hope that you're having a good time. I hope that you're enjoying it. And I hope that you have people to spend it with, some amazing people to spend it with. So autumn is my favorite season for a lot of reasons. Um, I love the, of course, the turning of the leaves. I love the chilly mornings. I love um, kind of returning to the more like cozy winter side of the seasons. Um, And I genuinely, I do look forward to winter. So I'm looking forward to winter now. And I also really love the transitional seasons for a lot of reasons. I think that as a very liminal person, the transitional seasons are a lot of fun. Um, And I've always preferred fall to spring, but I'm warming up to spring. Um, I think it's also interesting because fall is a time when we are all thinking about the dead. We are all thinking of our ancestors. There are so many holidays in the autumn um, that kind of represent uh, ancestor veneration and ancestor work. And there's a reason for that. I mean, the the plants are dying around us. The um, whole world is kind of starting to go to sleep. So you feel death a little closer. In Nordic folk practice, um, this is also an important time um, of ancestor veneration. We have the two uh, celebrations of Alpha Bloat and Disablot. So Alpha Bloat is the uh, sacrifice to the elves, as well as the um, masculine ancestors. And Disablot, which comes later, it's in December, um, usually is uh, also known as Mother's Night, and it is a sacrifice to the uh, feminine ancestors. Um, So we have men, women, and masculine and feminine being represented here. Um, And it's even kind of So about alpha bloat, I guess I should say, before I go into the next thing, I should talk a little bit about these, right? Yes. So alpha bloat is an interesting sacrifice because it is the one kind of celebration in the year where it was fully behind closed doors. This was a time of um, really just getting insular with your family or your housemates, whoever you like lived with immediately. 
And we have records of travelers being turned away at this time, which is why we know it was such a secretive holiday. Um, Mother's Night is also a little bit more family-oriented than community-oriented. Um, it seems that more people celebrate Alpha Bloat than Disa Bloat, um, just because Alpha Bloat is around the same time as Halloween and in our culture, um, our you know American culture, that's uh, that feels very natural. Um, and Disa Bloat is also a time of particularly giving thanks to you know any mothers who died in childbirth. Um, mothers who um, have passed along and the maternal family line and all of that that feminine grace has given us. As a non-binary person, I like to think of these uh, dualistic holidays as the masculine and feminine energies. So, um, of course, a butch uh, lesbian in my ancestral lineage would be celebrated on alpha bloat to me and a femme twink in my ancestry would be celebrated um if he considered himself feminine he would be uh celebrated on disa bloat um i'm just like imagining like a house mother of an ancestor <laughs> Anyway, um, so I just want to say that, you know, even as a non-binary person, I know that these holidays can be very um, uh, binary and they don't need to be, right? We all carry feminine and masculine within us. Um, it's just an expression of our own personal gender and where we fall on the gender spectrum, the gender explosion. Um, but all in all, this is a time of sacrificing and um, honoring and venerating our ancestors. Some ways to, my favorite way to do that is with the hoozle. Um, so this is a tradition in traditional witchcraft. Um, it was first introduced to me as a dumb supper. Um, but basically you get um, your closest family together and you um, bless some bread and you bless some wine um, or you bless a meal and you bless a beverage. It doesn't need to be alcoholic. Um, and you uh, offer it up to the ancestors. So you prepare a plate or you prepare a cup for the ancestors. And then you just sit in silence. Um, if you are doing this with more than one person, this feels like a very uh, warm and intimate, sometimes awkward thing to do. But um, it is important to sit in silence in order to better communicate with your individual ancestors. And even if you have a similar lineage, communicating with um, different people or communicating differently with your ancestors at this time. If you uh, look up Hoozle online, you'll probably find some instructions. It is um, spelled H-O-U-S-E-L, Hoozle. Um, and I will try to find something for the show notes, although I haven't been. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll put something in the show notes about that. Um, so those are just some ways of celebrating. I would probably do a dumb supper on both um, or a Hoozle. I would perform a Hoozle on both. Um, Alpha bloat and Disa bloat. 
um, and just connect with different ancestors on those different holidays. That's one thing that you can do. Um, other There are other ways that this is a time of working with the dead. So in the old Viking calendar, this uh, upcoming new moon, which is on, I believe, Wednesday or Thursday, it is November 4th, um, marks Gormanyudur. Um, and this is translates to slaughter month. So this was the month when all of the um, animals were being slaughtered um, for the winter and, you know, meat processed and preserved and uh, leather, you know, made and things from <laughs> things from the, the animals on the farm. Um, and this was also a time, of course, to bring in your cattle um, so that they can overwinter in some stables. Um, and so Gorman Yudur uh, is also an important month to think of um, the animals that have given their life um, for you. Um, you know, if you eat meat or if you uh, eat dairy, um, you know, even just thinking about where that comes from is important. It is said that during Gorman Yudur, the wild hunt is afoot. Um, the wild hunt, often led by Odin um, in, uh, I believe it's, oh, I'm forgetting her name, um, but it it's often led by Odin or a witch. Um, and this is a time for the restless, de restless dead, the wandering spirits to kind of come together and seek warmth. Um, so a lot of people are preparing for that and doing rituals of protection over their homes to protect themselves from the wild hunt. So in general, there's a lot going on right now. Um, but I always see this as a time to just venerate my ancestors, you know, perform um, those sacrifices or the hoozles for you know, the people in my lineage um, that I love and that I work with. Um, and it's also an important time to just get ready for the long winter. Um, and ancestor work is a very important part of my practice. And so I'm actually starting a series both here and then on my blog. The, the blog post isn't up quite yet, but if you follow me on Instagram or Twitter, um, you'll know when it's up. Um, but I'm starting an, a series on ancestor work here. So I have uh, this interview with Lex upcoming, but then I also have some other interviews coming and then some just personal reflections on ancestor work and practices that you can do. So uh, stick around for that. Um, I don't know quite what to call it. Uh, the Heathen's Journey, which was my journey, which is my journey through the runes, is just such a concise name that I kind of want to call this something similar, but I don't, I don't know yet. We'll see. Um, but expect more ancestor work content on the podcast. And the first person that we will have on as a guest is the Lex Ritchie. So um, I wanted to put them first in this series because they articulate so clearly um, what ancestor work means to them and offer multiple avenues for queer people to come into ancestor work. So 
Um, Lex Ritchie is a tarot reader and folk magician weaving spells for liberation, living in the Great Black Swamp. They believe individual liberation and enchantment create collective liberation and enchantment. Lex helps witches connect to their power, agency, and magic so they can make magic that makes change. They offer tarot readings and folk magical education and can be found online at thelexritchie.com and on Instagram and Twitter at thelexritchie. And without further ado, let's dive into this interview. Hello, Lex. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Happy to be here. Yes. I'm so happy to have you. So before we uh, got live with our conversation, um, I did a, a brief introduction of you in the intro to this episode, but in your own words, who are you and what is the work that you do? Yeah. So I am... I'm a mystic I guess I'm sort of like I used to be like oh I'm a witch but um language is shifting right now I'm kind of uh in a shifty place but I'm a I'm a queer mystic who does folk magic and tarot and I offer tarot readings and folk magical education and when I am doing that in my work uh I'm always centering personal agency because I want people to find their own magic and connect to the magic within themselves. That's going to make change for them. So I'm all about making magic that makes change. I love that so much. And I also really love mystic as a noun, like (laughs) mystic as like an identity of what you can, um, be and do. I know that there's kind of like this interesting conversation that's happening. And I've noticed it's sort of bubbling up for a lot of people who are not necessarily like in the same sphere or related to one another. Um, as far as I know, um, who are talking about, you know, the word, witch and how much that word is getting used. Um, and I really like to highlight that not all magic makers are witches and you don't have to identify as a witch in order to um, be someone who practices magic. So um, yes. Yeah. And it's like, I love the word witch, you know, and I love that there's a liminality in the word um, that is really, you know, embodied in what I do, but there's something about it. That's like, it's almost like my own conception of the witch and the, other people's conception of which when I say I'm a witch are different. And it's like, that's, Mm. that's the gap. It's like, I need a new word. I don't know what that word is yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. I totally understand that. Um, So yeah. So I know that um, a lot of your work uh, focuses around agency, as you said, and I think that that's really beautiful from one queer magic worker to another. Um, And I also know that a lot of your work has to do with um, ancestor work and spirit work as well. So for listeners who are perhaps not familiar with ancestor work or spirit work, um, what do those terms mean for you? 
Um, some listeners may have heard uh, Katie Swallow talk about ancestor work on this uh, podcast a while back, but um, there are many different ways of doing this work. So let's just center around like, what is your way of doing this work? Yeah, so... Let's talk about spirit work and then we'll talk about ancestor work because ancestor work, in my opinion, is spirit work. Um, so spirit work is working with spirits. Um, where It's um, not necessarily magic, but like it can be meditation. It can be conversation. It can be, um, it could look like herbalism. Um, it could be trance work where you are, directly collaborating with spirits and spirits could be deities. They could be spirits of the land. They could be um, the spirit of your house um, or it could be the spirits of the deceased in your life, your ancestors. So when we do ancestor work, you know, um, I actually just wrote about this today. Um, ancestor work is this, branch of mystical occult work that we see in many cultures across the world and the why the ancestor work is done and the how the ancestor work is done is what differs but like that entity of spirit that case that class of spirit of ancestor is there's something like just in it that like many humans across the world have found to be powerful and important and worthy of recognizing and honoring. And whether you are engaging with your lineage ancestors, so uh, your so-called blood ancestors, I don't love that term for a lot of reasons. I use lineage ancestors or whether you're engaging with queer ancestors, be they uh, queer ancestors who were part of your found family who passed on or, um, queer ancestors in like the cultural zeitgeist, like maybe Freddie Mercury that you're choosing to engage with to um, learn more about queerness, to interact with queerness as an idea, the spirit of queerness. Um, or it could be, um, you know, uh, ancestors of affinity. I, I guess suppose queer ancestors are an ancestor of affinity. Um, but it's, I, I conceive of ancestors very expansively. Um, and you can engage with these ancestors for the purpose of healing, either healing something your ancestors did, perhaps your ancestors were white supremacists, or your own healing. Um, or it could be for the purpose of simply creating connection, um, for me, a lot of the reasons I engage with my ancestors is to learn. So magic is really important to me and engaging with magic in a way that is in right relationship is important to me. So I often engage with my ancestors who remember engaging in right relationship with magic and the natural world as a way to um, further my own magical practice and build a magical practice that is as in right relationship as possible for me in this world. Okay, so um, it's a kind of expansive and rambly definition. I actually think that the way that you broke it down was really good. Okay, um, good. I'm <laughs> yes. The <laughs> the reason I tend to think of ancestor work and spirit work as being separate 
Not that they are, because when you're talking to ancestors, you are in fact talking to spirits, but because I have a whole like host of other kinds of spirits that I talk to. And so Uh in my mind, like it's a very distinct, like a very different kind of relational experience when I'm talking with, you know, my Tomta versus when I'm talking with my grandmother versus when I'm talking with a queer ancestor versus when I'm engaging with generic spirits that live in my house or (laughs) on my block, you know, like, yeah. um, Yeah. And I think that's like really fair, but like, so for me, the way I think of it is like, all of that is, is connection. All of that is relationship building. And like that relationship building is at the heart of spirit work. Um, and, and so like, yeah, you might need to like have a different language or a different lexicon or a different like approach. There's different social mores for each category of spirit that you might want to work with. Um, but yeah, you're all, it's all still spirit work. Yes, absolutely. So then how does tarot fit into this for you? Um, I know that I definitely use tarot a little bit more so runes these days, actually, as a medium of connection. Um, But uh, like, how does tarot kind of interface with ancestor work for you? Yeah, um, tarot has been a way for me to connect with the ancestors that I don't necessarily have a strong shared language with. Um, So sometimes when I'm connecting with ancestors, you know, um, they're like, Oh, why don't you speak this language? And I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry. Like I really, I really only speak English and I love there's, there's something really powerful about the English language and that it's like super flexible And so I can say things in a lot of different ways. And I often tell these ancestors who complain about my language um, that like, this is a really flexible language and you can let me know how you would rather I say this Um, because often like we use a lot of possessives and uh, my ancestors don't love possessives, but I can change my language in English to not include possessives. Um, But sometimes still it's, um, it's difficult to, like they don't know, you know, we don't always speak the same language, especially when we're connecting to like deeper ancestors or ancestors who've been obscured or hidden um, from our, like the larger story of history, whether that is our own lineage ancestors who've been obscured or perhaps like radical ancestors whose stories have like literally not been written down because that's how history gets written. Um, so the tarot cards are a visual language. They engage in... In, in something that's a little bit beyond language. Um, and they bring in, you know, tarot is a spirit in and of itself. And so that, that tarot spirit can kind of like bridge some of that gap sometimes. Um, and di- uh, di- cardomancy, uh, using cards for divination, is something that is pretty widespread across a lot of cultures, um, especially in, you know, like the last 500 or so years. So it's a form of communication that a lot of spirits, particularly ancestor spirits, will readily recognize. Um, yeah. So that's some some of how tarot intersects with my spirit work practice. Yeah, I find that to be really um, true for my own practice as well. Um, 
tarot is a really good tool um, for connection, particularly even be, if cartomancy wasn't a part of this ancestor's um, understanding. They can at least like engage with the art in a mm-hmm. deck of tarot, at least, you know, like, and that's yeah. why I think tarot is really helpful. Runes for me also have a similar kind of helpful quality because they're like these very fascinating letters and entities that are themselves the makeup of a language and therefore can be used really well for communication with spirits because it's like, oh, we're a language that also is just communicating beyond the veil or like communicating beyond your lived experience. Mm-hmm. So even I found it even helpful. Like I've been diving into a lot of like French Canadian ancestors lately. They're just very present for me right now. And though you would think maybe tarot as in, you know, like a Marseille deck or something would be more appropriate given the lineage history runes still are my go-to divination practice for communicating with those ancestors. Yeah. And I mean, so I'm still pretty new to runes and I don't use them professionally, but like, you know, when I was taking your class on the rune series and I, I shared with you that like, uh, there were early Greek divination systems that used the early Greek alphabet on knuckle bones. The, the concept of using alphabets as something, you know, as like this primordial language um, and the power of just like the sheer power of language itself um, as, as a div- divinatory, as a magical practice. Um, yeah. It's something that is not limited to the Norse runes and I'm sure resonates with many of our ancestors. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So I know that a lot of people, um, kind of continuing to dive into ancestor work. Um, and this time approaching it from a very temporal and practical perspective, we are recording this podcast episode in October. It is being released later than that, but still kind of in the autumnal period. Um, and I know that a lot of people kind of consider October, November to be very um, potent months for ancestor veneration and ancestor practice. So, um, what do you think of in terms of time, times of year to practice and like when to really get started? Like, are there certain cycles when your ancestors are particularly loud? Are there certain times where it seems like it's harder? Like, how do you, how do you relate with that? Yeah. Um, So I'm in this interesting shifty moment with my own like sort of personal wheel of the year where I'm moving away from this, uh, the, what we traditionally refer to as the wheel of the year, which is very rooted in like, you know, the English seasons and everything. And even though they match where I currently am, um, yeah, I, I, I love this season of the year. And I think it's definitely a season of the year where if you don't currently engage with the ancestors, it's very easy to feel them. Um, I don't necessarily think so. Like some people are like, oh, the veil is thin right now. I don't think that's necessarily the way it works. Um, I think we're primed to sense our ancestors right now because 
everything outside is dying. We're primed to think about the dead and to be able to sense that because that's what we're surrounded with right now. Um, but I, so, so Samhain, uh, all souls, right. Um, is, it's always a major part of my calendar. It's been the mainstay of my ancestor practice for years. Um, but I work with my ancestors throughout the, um, winter season. Um, and really, uh, through the last few years, it's been all souls. Um, so like really it sort of starts building up around, um, Michael nests. Um, and then you have all souls. And then I work my ancestor practice through to candle which is, um, in bulk in the traditional wheel of the year. Um, but I also feel my ancestors being pers- personally, I feel my ancestors really present around uh, May Day, around um, that sort of blossoming moment of spring. It's sort of on the opposite axis to Samhain. And so, yeah, there's not, nothing, every, it's, it's a balance, right? And so when we have, everything's passing away in, and at, around Samhain so that it can blossom around May Day. Um, so in both of those poles are really great opportunities to engage with that duality and to engage with the ancestors. Um, but I don't think you have to do it in a particular season. I just think that our brains are primed for doing it right now. And you might have a little bit more success if you're not somebody who is easily in contact with the ancestors. Yeah, I think that there's something definitely to be said for a greater cultural focus on the dead being helpful when you have not like engaged with your own beloved dead or your own ancestors before. So even just the, you know, idea of all of these different holidays that kind of celebrate the dead or remember the dead. um, That's a really great place to start. I know for me, I have actually, having been raised by a, an ex Catholic Um, I have never actually attended an All Souls Day or an All Saints Day Mass, but I'm really excited this year to go to one for the first time as an active ancestor connection. Um, So that's also another way that people can, you know, kind of like, what are the holidays that are celebrated in your culture around this time? And like, are there groups that you can go to to um, experience them? Yeah. Yeah, I I recommend to a lot of my friends who have Catholic ancestry, you know, if you can do that, like not everyone can go into a church and that's cool. But if you can, it is a massive shortcut because the Catholic Church has been doing All Souls Day Masses and honoring all souls for hundreds of years. That's a powerful mm-hmm. ritual that your ancestors are going to readily flock to. Yes, absolutely. Um, So I know you've got a couple of things cooking behind the scenes. Um, I know that you over the summer recently kind of like came out with a new form of tarot reading that talks a lot about our personal stories. And this is a little bit of a shift away from ancestor work. We'll get back there, I promise, for everybody who wants to talk more about the spooky things. Um, But I want to kind of take a moment to just like talk about um, 
your uh, true story readings. Is that what they're called? True story transformation. True story transformation. I love <laughs> it. Tell me, tell me more. Tell us everything about it. Yeah. So I started, I, I got the idea for these when I was playing a lot with my own story and through um, a mixture of, you know, pretty typical magical ritual and trance work. Um, and the way we tell our stories and engaging with story um, can fast track transformation. You know, when we have stories about like why we're coming up against a brick wall or why we can't do something that it hampers us. And if we can, first of all, recognize that story. And second of all, rewrite it. Um, that dissolves the block that's in our way. Um, so what the true story transformation sessions are, is they're sort of like, a, it's almost like a combination of a trance work, energy work kind of session and tarot. So um, what happens is I, as the reader, I'm not simply pulling cards. I'm going, I facilitate a sacred space for us to actually engage with your story, the story you're telling yourself now and the story that is going to bring transformation that's going to dissolve that block that you're coming up against. And it's almost like a, um, it's like trans, it's like a big sandbox. Like that's kind of what I think of trans work as it's this sandbox in which you play. Right. Um, and engaging in that kind of trans work can be hard and scary um, when you're doing it yourself. And so I wanted to bring the tarot in to it um, because tarot is accessible. We were just talking about how images are really accessible. And so I don't want to tell my client what I'm seeing. I want them to be able to work with me to describe what is happening for them. So I'm like, these are the cards I have. This is what I'm seeing. How does that relate for you? And together in that sacred space of a true story transformation session, we get to work out those pieces um, and craft a new story and build steps that towards enacting and living that story. It sounds very um, interactive. It is. It's super interactive. I love it. Yeah. I, I also really like to read it in an interactive way. Um, because I think that, you know, I don't necessarily as the reader know, like what is the most important thing for the person to hear or, you know, um, that was a weird way of putting it. So like as a reader, of course I can see things, but I also want to make sure that the client is getting what they want. And sometimes clients, you know, might want a bit of a partner in figuring out what the real question is or, like new questions come up in readings and stuff like that. So yes, I really love the interactive style of this. Yeah. Um, you also do an ancestral tarot reading, right? Yes, I do. Yes. Mm -hmm. What is that like? So that tarot reading, it's a ton of fun. Um, it's recorded this year because um, the ancestors are loud and um, it's really hard to both manage like a, talking to a person 
and interpret cards and like channel things when and so the ancestors are loud so it's recorded so I don't have to like manage like describe to the, uh, the client what I'm doing um so um yeah they're really powerful and they're an outgrowth of I, I was having this experience for a couple of months in my um in my tarot practice where I would have clients come and they were asking about their ancestors and that's awesome and rad but my my usual tarot readings are not they can answer questions about the ancestors, but they're not necessarily um, the best suited. So I needed to create something that was specific for working with the ancestors. And what this reading does is it looks at you and your ancestors, your context, um, and then what is needed, right? So whether that is, you know, what you're hoping for from your ancestor work is healing or whether it is just connection or whether you want to connect to a certain subset of your ancestors. Like maybe you want to connect to the subset of ancestors um, you have who did magic, who knew how to make magic um, and you want to connect to ancestral magic. Um, so we start to look at, right. I was talking earlier about the, um, the why and the how is different for all of these different cultures across the world of ancestor work. Um, I, I think everyone's why and how, now that we're approaching this individually, right, is different. And that's part of the reason why ancestor work is can be kind of intimidating. Um, it's because we're approaching it now individually, what should be like larger work, um, communal, community work. And so getting clear on your why and your how is really important. So maybe, you're, like I said, maybe your why is you want to heal some broken connection that you have to your ancestry. Maybe your why is um, wanting to feel connected to something larger than you. Either of those are great whys, um, but knowing your why helps you get really clear on how you're actually going to practice and how you um, how it would be most supportive for you to actually move forward. Because there's so many ways to do ancestor work and you cannot do them all. Um, and if you're feeling called to ancestor work, it's really important work. So I want to help facilitate connections to whys and hows. Um, so that everyone can start accessing ancestor work in a way that's supportive for them. Yeah, it reminds me just the way that you kind of phrase that reminds me of um, on the Inciting a Riot podcast, uh, Firelight and Thorn Mooney will often, or you know, like Thorn is a, a regular guest on the podcast, and she often talks about like let's put the why before the what. Um, particularly, you know, in her context, it's like, if you're doing magic, you need to know why you're doing magic. Mm -hmm. And that's also often how I teach. It's like, okay, understand like why you're doing magic, AKA what needs to change. And then you figure out what your like actual spell is going to look like. Mm -hmm. Um, but then doing that around ancestry, you know, I think that especially for queer people, 
um, who feel called to ancestor work, um, whether or not you had a difficult relationship with your immediate family. I know that a ton of queer folks that I have worked with have been very hesitant to do ancestor work. And it's because we're often told a certain why that does not match this person, you know, like the individual's why. Mm-hmm. I feel like something that I've noticed in larger trends in ancestor work are like, oh, we are practicing ancestor work in order to, um, we are practicing ancestor work in order to trace our roots back. Um, you know, there are some people who take a very genealogical approach. I mean, I know that like on the um, census, they sometimes track hobbies and in the early, like in the early 2000s to the 2010s, like genealogy became a really, really huge trend for Americans. Um, But in my experience, working with ancestors, like knowing their names or doing the family tree, mapping all of that, actually makes way less sense and hasn't been my entry point. Um, I go on, I I say all of this to say that I think that's a really brilliant way of approaching it because, you know, understanding that there are so many different reasons why people might be doing this is essential. And it's going to be different for a queer person who, you know, maybe you are seeking support from spirits that you didn't have from family in, you know, you're in the living world, or, you know, perhaps you are seeking um, understanding about responses that you have to events that don't feel like they're yours. Um, For me, I just like, I'm going to be real with you. I've always been fascinated by ghosts. So this idea of there being something that remains after death um, has just always been really fascinating to me. And so, of course, like ancestry feels like a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I just just to echo you, like ancestry work is not genealogical. And, you know, a lot of people feel a lot of shame when they're like, oh, I can't do ancestry work because I don't know who my ancestors at all, you know, Um and the, the perception that ancestor work is genealogy causes a lot of harm because, like, the people who can do genealogy are white people and, like, particularly white people whose families own land. Yes. Um, and, you know, just me as somebody who is white... Um, I have ancestors who, like, relatively recent ancestors who I can't find, you know? I can't go that far back, and I'm white, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, It's so much harder for, you know, people who aren't white and people who've been adopted, and, like, it's it's not a necessary component at all. Genealogy is not required. This is not a genealogical practice whatsoever. No. And in fact, um, when I was asking Kari about it, because she's, you know, my personal teacher in a lot of ways, um, I said, oh, should I get like an Ancestry.com account? And she was like, nope, you actually shouldn't because it will 
um, give you perceptions and ideas of your ancestors that are not necessarily true to the experience mm-hmm. um, or not necessarily like the ancestors that you want to connect to. Yeah. Um, so I think we're kind of hovering around this idea that for um, queer people, especially in, I'll be frank, we are talking as two white queer people. So um, I know that there are a lot of really good um, podcasts by people of color um, that reference ancestor work. Um, and I can't speak to the experience of doing ancestor work as a person of color. Um, but I can talk to about it as a queer person. So what are some entries? And as you have worked with clients, what are some of the whys that people can be attracted to ancestor work as a queer person? Yeah. Um, All right. <laughs> Those are like two different <laughs> questions. Let me, let me take the first one first. Um, so, Sorry, I tend to mush questions together because my brain goes in a million different places at once. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they are connected. So um, yeah, it's, it's totally cool. All right. So entry points into uh, ancestor work for queer people. But also, you know, I, I think this is true for anybody who doesn't want to start with your lineage ancestors, which is if you don't want to start with your lineage ancestors, that's totally cool. Um, So particularly for your, for queers uh, folks, did you have, do you have any queer ancestors? Did you have a queer great aunt or something like that? Right. Um, That would be a great entry point. uh, Just working with that one ancestor. Um, was there someone in your hometown uh, who was queer um, in some way? Maybe an elementary school teacher or, you know, a beloved English teacher. And these are both examples that I had from my own past. So um, they were both teachers. Ooh, I guess it's kind of a famous lesbian profession. So that makes <laughs> sense. Yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, But also, so I mentioned like Freddie Mercury, like who are the famous um, queer ancestors? Or maybe you want to engage with many queer ancestors. For example, um, the um, like ACT UP, the the queer ancestors who participated in uh, AIDS activism through ACT UP or through another organization. these like queers from history are also excellent entry points. Um, if you know a lot about, if you do know something about your like general lineage, um, maybe engaging with queerness from that lineage. So for me being Southern Italian, um, there is, uh, what is it? Uh, the Feminello, uh, who were cross-dressers in Naples. Um, so maybe there is some queerness in your history uh, in your in your you know lineage ancestry that you might want to engage with. Um, if you are like Siri and uh, have more Northern European, uh, maybe listening to the Vikings are gay podcast. That's yeah, that yeah, that would be an excellent entry point. Um, I love that podcast. <laughs> Everyone, listen to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have to have to shout. Mm-hmm. No, it's a wonderful podcast. Um, so those 
I don't, I hope that gives folks some ideas. Um, ultimately, there's like no hard and fast rule about it. It's like, what's drawing your attention? What's going to hold your interest? What is going to get you to, um, what, what's going to get you involved, right? Um, and one that I, you know, this is sort of a blanket one. If you don't really want to, if you do know a little bit about your family history, but you don't have like specifics of where you want to start, like particular ancestors, um, so on, like just cooking is great. Yes. Um, you know, and that doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with queerness. Like, but it's just like, this is something that sustains your ancestors. This is something that will sustain you. And together in that like shared sustenance, like that shared concept of sustenance, like connections can be made. And um, even if it's something like that's not culturally specific, you want to learn how to bake an amazing loaf of bread. That could mm -hmm. be great too. Um, okay. So those are like general ideas, but like whatever, you know, where's your heart pulling you? That's follow that. Um, and then the second question was, why do some people, why do, why do queer people feel a calling into this? Right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, and I think, you know, I think queer people feel called into ancestor work for the same reasons that everyone gets called into ancestor work. That sort of, that feeling of connection, that feeling of belonging to something larger and that yearning, there's at least for me, there's, there's a yearning for right relationship and for connecting to my ancestors who knew how to be in right relationship and my ancestors who resisted uh, the structures of wrong relationship. So my ancestors who resisted um, capitalism, for example, um, those are all people that I want to be in connection with when I'm thinking about making magic and creating new worlds. Um, so if I want to re-enchant the world, I want that re-enchantment to bring back that right relationship. It might not look exactly the same. My spells that I cast might not be the same. We live in a different world, but remembering that there is a long struggle against systems of oppression, that there is a long struggle against that disconnection that capitalism and colonialism have forced upon us. Um, that, that's what so many people are seeking. That's, that's so many people's whys. And like within that big why, right? Within that like very human need for connection and community. Um, so in this case, it's, you know, mystical, uh, spiritual, literally a community of spirits, right? Where we don't just want community with other humans, but with the supernatural, with the more than mundane world. Um, and then within that, there might be, so there, there's, the, there's the individual why. So when you yearn for that connection, are you yearning for it because because somebody told you you couldn't have it and you need you like, this is a process of healing that. Are you yearning for it because you're yearning for um, sustenance in this process of resisting systems of oppression, which can be hard connecting to radical ancestors can be very sustaining in that. 
Um, are you maybe it's desire for inspiration for new ways to make magic that are in right relationship? Like I've gotten some of my best spell recipes from my ancestors while cooking, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there, there's so many individual whys that are underneath that, that like just superhuman yearning for connection. Yeah. You put that so beautifully. I think that it is all about connection and relationships and it's, I know that over the last year that I've really deepened my own ancestral relationships and my own spirit relationships, I know that my heart feels fuller and I feel more supported in general um, than before I really got engaged with this practice. And I want that for more people. Like I know that it's possible and I know that it has changed my life in some really positive and good ways. And I want that for more people. And I do think that the desire for belonging is something that is very, um, core and central to the human experience. Um, and it, especially like so many of the queer people that I have worked with have had um, really difficult family relationships. Non-queer people also can have very difficult family relationships. (laughs) And I know that sometimes when people are like, ah, now I'm going to have like, like dead family to deal with. (laughs) Like it's not that it's more like we're finding family. And that's also why I think it's really important to talk about ancestors that are not within your genetic lineage mm-hmm. um, as well, because, you know, they may be ancestors like the people who lived on the land. So, for example, in Nordic um, practice, the uh, Tomta is usually um, over the centuries, the Tomta became smaller and smaller and smaller and became like this little figure with a beard and a red cap who um, helped out around the farm. But originally the Tomta was the first person or the first kind of leader of a family to pass away on that land. So you're really engaging with that figure and that figure became connected to the land and becomes a spirit that is other than their, you know, like, spirit like living self like they do transition um and so that I do kind of consider um if you have um if you are working with a tomto or you are working with a house spirit in that way like in a way you are working with an ancestor mm-hmm. the connection then becomes we have lived and loved this land at different times yeah um and yeah, that and, is the relationship. And I haven't mentioned ancestors of place, you know, yet, but that's Let's totally get into a thing. it. Yeah, we can do that. Um, but first, you said something about um, genetic lineage. And I just want to say, like, something, like, real quick, um, like, because my commitment to, like, talking, uh, like, not calling them blood ancestors and things like that is, like, first of all, you're more than your blood. But, like, there's some, like, fashy shit that goes on in the larger ancestor work world um, that is worth paying, like keeping an eye out for if you are just starting to get into this. Um, Like the, 
it's, you know, the hyper-focus on genealogy, the hyper-focus on like, oh, my DNA test said I'm from this country. And so then I'm uh, Slovenian, even though like, you know, your, when your ancestors lived there, it wasn't Slovenia. Right. You know? Um, So a lot of that plays into some pretty right-wing rhetoric and it pays to be careful. So. Yes. Which is exactly why I call it like, um, we all come from a, like many different lineages in terms of our ancestor work. And it's hard to know, like, how to differentiate that without also sounding like the people who are, I haven't found a, I haven't found a good way. Yeah. And and it's also true that like, um, some of like the right, so to speak, has had longer in this field to like, to drive the language. Um, so yeah, trying to find our own vocabulary is really important in this. And, um, yeah. So it's just, yeah, this is, this is near and dear to my heart, both because like, I think part of it is, um, about connecting to the, these radical ancestors who, you know, don't have names written down in history, but also, um, not, not being willing to seed this realm of magic that has so much potential for healing and creating new worlds to people who want to use it to hurt others. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Like there's, you know, working with ancestors in a healing way and um, there's working with ancestors in order to weaponize them. Yes. And that is, they're just completely different beasts, completely different beasts. Um, Sorry for that aside. We can talk about ancestors (laughs) of place now. (laughs) No, it's a very important aside. And as you know, like so much of my work is dedicated to like tearing out like white supremacy and you know like helping people understand the language that is like this is actually a dog whistle for like a white supremacist heathen like that mm-hmm. kind of thing so like thank you of course <laughs> it's 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 not a it's not an aside it's it's an important part of what we're doing so um so yes let's talk about ancestors of place so this is very interesting to me and has been an important part of my own work because you know, I am the descendant of settler colonizers um, living on uh, Anishinaabe and Dakota land and um, rooting into like place and understanding place from a much broader and deeper perspective is really important to me. But I also think that it's very important. This is another place where it's really important to be careful um about how you're engaging with this so let's talk about how do you approach ancestors of place yeah um so you know one way i have approached ancestors of place is a little bit more happy and upbeat and then then the other way um so let me talk about you know this you were talking about like, you know, the spirit of the land, the, the Thompson, uh, that kind of thing. And like, that's a, that's an awesome way to engage with that's a, literally an ancestor of place. Um, and another way that is great to engage with 
ancestors, a place. Um, and, you know, this is very much specific to my context here in the Great Black Swamp, Northwest Ohio area. But there is um, there's a uh, type of habitat here called oak openings. It's a very specific type of habitat. Um, it doesn't exist naturally. It was uh, maintained and facilitated by the native people here. And um, thinking about these, the ways that um, these people intentionally worked with the land and the plants that they intentionally worked with and coming to know the plants that are still are here and this ecosystem that still must be maintained in a way that is um, collaborative between nature and human. Um, that's another way that I, I engage with Ancestors of Place is this habitat that was here before people were, well, before settlers were ever here, um, before these houses were ever built. Um, and thinking about yeah, what does it mean to be on the land and in collaboration in that way? But then, um, and so, and also engaging with plants, um, native plants that grow in this region. Um, I also have this um, concept. I don't really have a great name for it. Currently, I call them diasporic plants, but they're not necessarily like, it's not, that might be a better name for like a naturalized plant, right? That didn't originally grow here. This is these. This is what I call plants that are native here, and that were also native in places that my ancestors lived. Um, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't have a good name for it, but um, this has been a really important part of my practice, and it's growing right now, um, and I love it. But like plants like linden, nettle, yarrow, um, plants that have native uh, rose is another great one that have native varieties here and then also in other parts of the world. So um, linden is fairly widespread. It has native varieties here in the US. It also has native varieties that grow in Central Asia and the Mediterranean and in Europe. Nettle also grows um, across the um, uh, Western Asian um, into Central Asia region, as well as in Europe. A lot of people think it's only a European herb. That's not true. Um, and it also has native varieties in the U.S. Um, and connecting to these plants that grow here and grow there, um, plants that my ancestors know, but also that the land knows deeply and intimately has been really important for me. That um, has also been really important for me lately as well. Yeah. I have been... Um, you know, kind of working over the last year to get to know the spirit of birch. Mm, um, birch is a good one. Yes, birch is really good. And also birch it, being a northern tree, you know, there's a certain line that's called the birch line. And I feel very thankful that I live above the birch line mm -hmm. in the U.S. Um, and also the people who, the, the native peoples who live here also have a deep relationship with birch. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's a really interesting way of rooting and like growing your understanding. Yeah. Um, another thing that I've been working with, I've been working with the nine herbs charm lately. Mm -hmm. um, and all of those plants also grow here. Yeah. Um, 
So getting to know them very specifically. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And then there's a lot um, to unpack with that one. Yeah. (laughs) The final way I engage with ancestors of place is um, directly confronting in the ways that I can the colonial ancestors um, of place. So uh, where I live, um, the really big uh, colonial ancestor of place is uh, Mad Anthony Wayne, the general who um, headed the campaign to kick the native tribes out of this area and clear it for settling. Mm. Um, And there are so many bridges and roads and there's a plumbing company named after Anthony Wayne and um, you know, avoiding those bridges and thinking like, it's, it's funny, but like intentionally taking the longer route um, to something in order to avoid um, a bridge or a road named after Anthony Wayne has been, has pr- brought me a lot of time to think to think on what it means to be living on this land, to be a settler, to be extended of settlers. And um, yeah, and of course, all of this, in addition to uh, donating to Native organizations, that, yeah, I should say it, but it should be a given, I think, so. Yes, yes. Um, In Minneapolis, there's actually a really uh, concise, thing happening around uh, place names. So one of the colonizers um, who uh, was really big in Minneapolis history is Calhoun. Um, And one of the most popular lakes in Minneapolis, the city of lakes, it was Lake Calhoun. But, um, you know, a group of native folks and allies worked to rename the lake to Bidet Makaska, mm-hmm. which is the original um, Dakota name yeah. uh, for the for the lake. And so uh, the park board agreed and they changed the name of the lake and they changed the road around the lake from, you know, Calhoun Drive to Bidet Makaska um, Drive. And that has been really powerful. And people have resisted it mm-hmm. like so many people resisted it they were like oh I can't say that name like why do we need to change things and it's just been really interesting how much the name of a place really riles up people who are committed to the old or you know the white supremacist order yeah yeah and it's you know it's something I I dream of is like getting the names changed of these bridges and roads. And I hope to someday be part of making that happen. Yes. But for now I, I, you know, I don't drive on them and I donate and yeah, some, someday that will be in my capacity and, you know, in my, and in my community's capacity. So that's the dream. Yes. Um, so as we are kind of nearing the end of our time together, um, I know that you've got more stuff kind of coming up. If people are interested in working with you one-on-one, whether that is a, through an ancestral 
tarot reading. Um, or I believe you've got a class coming up. Yeah, I that's the plan. Um, yes. I, I am a chronically ill person and I just spent the last month sick. So it, the exact details are a little bit up in the air, but the idea is that it's going to be a class for ancestor work um, and not where I tell you what to do, but guide you through the process of crafting your own ancestor work practice. Um, so learning the basics, um, doing the self-reflection to figure out where you want to start, what your why is, what your how is going to be, actually trying it out, and then spending some time reflecting on how it went, how it felt, how you'd like to move forward, and what a sustainable practice would look like for you. And um, because I so strongly believe that this isn't something we should hold individually, right? Like it's not, ancestor work is not something that can be held individually. It's something that really needs to be held in community. Um, there's going to be a community portion to the class too. And that's really important for me is that, you know, there be a supportive community structure to it. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. So I took, um, I, I was in Laura Valeda Vesta. She did a, a course over the summer that was like kind of getting ready for a many weeks long rune practice. Um, and that was really wonderful because it, we had, she, she structured it where she had like um, every other week, there was like a just time for people to share their personal gnosis that had been developing and that is really, it's really beautiful to see and to make space. So I'm glad that you're making space for that as a part of your class. Yeah. I, I, I'm a, I don't know. I'm a little bit of a heretic where I'm like, you know, with, with where so many of us are at right now, like particularly white people, like it's all, it's all personal gnosis. Yes. You know? So like, that's what I want to help people. Like I want to help people facilitate folks finding their personal gnosis, having confidence in it, and continuing to refine and develop it um, as they grow in their practice. Yes, absolutely. So where can people find you? I am online at the Lex Richie, L-E-X-R-I-T-C-H-I-E.com. And then I'm on Instagram and Twitter as the Lex Richie. Fantastic. Everybody follow Lex. Um, they do fantastic work across all of their platforms. Thank you. Yes, please go follow me. <laughs> yes. Join the convo. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today, Lex. I super appreciate um, your perspective. And this has been a wonderful conversation. Yes, it has been. Thank you so much, Siri. And that is it for today's episode of the Heathen's Journey podcast. A huge thank you and shout out to all of my students and patrons for making this work available. If you want to become a patron and support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash northernlightswitch. I post full moon and new moon ritual guides, rune readings for each of the turning of the zodiac season, and so much more. If you would like to follow me in between episodes, you can find me on Instagram at northern.lights.witch or on Twitter at northlightwitch. Until next time, stay weird.